0: Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Everyone's got an opinion about it. Jerry Boyer is back with us again. Jerry's a regular guest on our show. He is the host of the podcast Meeting of Minds, author of Maker, The Maker Versus The Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics. Hey, Jerry, as
1: always, a pleasure. Hey, John. Thanks much. My pleasure.
2: Yeah. yeah. Nice to see you, Jerry.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice to see you, Kathy.
2: When you graduated from uh, Robert Morris, I believe that's where you went for your undergrad. Am I right about that? I did.
1: Did Spent you have student Ducais And then finished out at uh, Robert Morris.
2: Did you have student debt?
1: Uh, a little, not much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Morris wasn't a very expensive school, but I had some debt. Um, okay, and paid it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was okay. an, I was an accounting major, so I could get a job in accounting and finance. It was highly in demand, so I had a decent salary. So I was able to pay it off. What about your kids who chose to go to school? Did any of them? None of them. Um, we have seven kids. Wow. We um, left it up to them. Mm-hmm. We never did the well. You're we're middle class, so you have to go to college. Mm-hmm. We never did the you've got to do this, whether you want to or not, so that we don't have the embarrassment at a dinner party of someone saying, where do your kids go? <laughs> um, and, you know, saying to work uh, rather than naming a particular institution. Right. And they all decided that um, they weren't going to uh, go to college. And it's interesting. They actually wrote a book about it, um, that the three oldest um called uh you know what was it, why we didn't go to college and it was serialized in for at com. cool so what i told them is i said if you write a book about this and you're out there in the in the marketplace someone says why didn't you go to co- why don't i see college on this resume um i'd say give them the book hmm. you know say we took this seriously enough that we were willing to analyze it we we're anal- willing to analyze the promises that were being made by institutions like it's very common for colleges um in marketing departments. Now they don't call them marketing departments, right? Um, it's, it's acceptance, but they're out there to get more customers sure. for them to say, <laughs> well, there's this statistic that you make on the people who go to college, make a million dollars a year more than people who don't go to college, Wow, which is a, That's it's not, not really backed up. It's a suspiciously round number. That doesn't I even make say. any sense. And okay. no, it doesn't. Um, and of course you're, if you're going to glom together, chemical engineers, with um you know uh gender studies majors then maybe you'll get you know somewhere that the chemical engineers will like raise the average or something like that but don't use that to sell that to somebody who's going to a party school and studying basket weaving yeah um so i can tell you what what they did is when they needed to learn something they went on udemy or udacity or coursera Mm -hmm. and took the courses Mm. and coursera is interesting because you take the actual courses from universities but if you don't care about the credits, you can you can get what in essence what is a major in data science, which my son Jeremy did, and so did uh, my daughter Mercy um, from USC in one case, um, and Johns Hopkins in the other case for something like a thousand dollars. Wow, well, is that um, right? And it's, and it's the same content, and you get the certificate. You learned it. Uh, But it's not the magic of that credential. So for a long time, I started writing about the college bubble back in 2008. For a long time, we've been sort of college skeptical. Not all colleges. There's good colleges, and a lot of people should go to college. But the idea that automatically, if you're middle class, or even if you're not middle class, just automatically, you're a bad parent if you don't force your kids and pressure your kids to go to college and to get into the best school you can, which means the most expensive school. Regardless of whether the worldview undermines your own worldview, and regardless of what the price tag is, uh, seems to me to be an unwise decision. Mm -hmm. And and I guess the push to for debt forgiveness, in some ways, inadvertently vindicates that. I mean, if if this if these debts are such a terrible terrible burden, then it wasn't a pretty it wasn't any good deal to start with. Have to bail out those kids who did go to college. Well, then I guess it wasn't worth it, was it? No.
0: Okay, so the Biden administration saying, okay, uh, our program will benefit some 43 million people to the tune of $1.6 trillion in debt. That's a heck of a lot of money.
1: Yes, it is. It's added debt. Um, To me, the thing that I'm most worried about is what it does in terms of our political culture, because this is not going to be a one and done. Hmm. Susan just handed me a note. Did I say $1 million per year? Um, added, added income. It's $1 million over year. Oh, career. right. The aggregate. All right, all right. Um, so I'm sorry. What was the, what was the question again?
0: Yeah, we, we were just talking about, you know, 1.1.6 uh, uh,
1: oh, trillion dollars in debt. how big, how big debt. this is. Yeah. How big this debt. I, I, $300 billion over 10 years is about 1% um, GDP, about 1% like money supply growth. So the idea that this is going to be—I'm seeing conservatives out there saying this is going to be hyperinflationary. No, it's not. The, the, that number's not that big. Yeah. That that number over ten years is not that big, and the student loan debt number is not that big at one point four trillion. Yeah, it's got a trillion in front of it, but with a thirty trillion dollar economy, really bigger if you count you know the production cycle. Um, that it's not that that number is macroeconomically significant. It's more that there's a cultural problem, and one of one of part of that problem is. We tell kids, you've got to go to school. So a lot of them go in, they go, they study something that they're not going to work in. And that means they spend their 20s as baristas, you know, searching, you know, for their true selves. And we tend to not send kids into apprenticeship programs and things working with your hands. So we have an undersupply of certain occupations uh, uh, and an oversupply of certain majors. And that really messes these kids up. Mm -hmm. It's really not fair to them. And the debt forgiveness is a problem, I think, because this isn't going to be a one and done. This is a new precedent for the Democrats. And since the Republicans are just the Democrats, you know, with a 10 year lag, (laughs) there's going to be a bidding war about, you know, having like another. Well, we we wrote off those previous debts. Uh, Well, these uh, these new debts are just as as burdensome. So let's have another write off Hmm. and let's have a bigger write off. So we've now created a precedent in our rule of law and our in our economics that college debts are not really debts they are negotiations that you have with the debt service agencies and you never know when a politician's going to buy votes by just simply simply writing those off
0: interesting so then this is not necessarily an economic issue it's um it's more of a political issue
1: yes it's a political issue and it's a cultural issue um and it also isn't getting at the root of the problem because again, I I agree that student debt is a huge problem. I've been writing about this again since 2008. When I was doing speeches in 2008, people said we had a housing bubble that crashed. What's the next bubble? And I said college, mm-hmm. and they said you're crazy. You know, you, everyone has to go to college, and it's always worth it. It's like okay, you know, wait and see. Um, so that that problem still exists. The issue isn't the debt. The issue is the system that ensnare these kids in debt right. by pressuring them to go, by subsidizing it in, uh, in ways that are misleading, um, and by selling in a misleading way an asset that's not worth generally what, what it's portrayed as. That creates a huge m- misallocation. They call it a jobs mismatch. No welders, too many art history majors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is bad for the economy, but it's much worse for the kids who early on get told If you're a welder, you're a nobody. But if you're a college grad who's driving an Uber or blogging for free, you're still a somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really that, that that gets them off to a bad start. Right.
0: Also, right? oh, when you look at the universities, I mean, look at here in the city of Pittsburgh, Jerry. I mean, Oakland has been overrun by the behemoths of the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University. I mean, every square inch of Oakland, which used to be, you know, sort of a blue collar working class town, uh, is now owned by the universities. And it's surprising to drive into the university towns and just see growth after growth. I mean, new building after new building, it continues news on unabated. Does the bubble ever burst on
1: universities? And by the way, doesn't that look like a bubble? I'm sorry, Kathy, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say when I
2: drive into Oakland, all I see at the top of all those buildings to me is tuition, tuition, tuition. I mean, if tuition keeps going up at the rate it is for the University of Pittsburgh, I mean, what the conclusion I'm going to draw is that it's going into all the buildings I see going up all around. I'm sorry, Jerry, go ahead.
1: No, no, it's fine. And University of Pittsburgh is not a very expensive school, right? Right. Compared, you know, it's probably you know behind the pack in terms of being you know a high affordability. school. But yeah, that's tuition and it's federal grants um, and it's federal loans and now it's taxpayers directly because the kids borrowed and paid and now the taxpayers are essentially writing that off so so the taxpayers paid for all that construction i don't mind if colleges are so great that they attract so many students you know at that price tag but sure. if we've got a situation where they're going in there with hev- heavy federal subsidies it's already heavily federally subsidized and now on top of that not only are we subsidized, but the feds basically we're going to pay the bill now um you know th- that's uh, or at least a big part of the bill then what we're doing is taxpayers in general are subsidizing one particular in one particular institution and industry an industry by the way which doesn't pay taxes mm-hmm. so profit making businesses that pay taxes are essentially being forced to subsidize a non tax paying business which has gotten which has built infrastructure way beyond economic rationality just like we did with housing mm-hmm. in you know 2007 2008 Um, And then the reckoning comes reckoning came first in the form of covid. You know, (laughs) people said, well, I'll do I'll do distance education. Right, right. And the other reckoning comes in the labor market where the labor market is saying we don't need more liberal arts majors uh, from second tier colleges. Um, we need more people who can do something useful with their hands. Right.
2: But here's here's the question for you, Jerry, and I'm sorry I, I interrupted you, John. I, we've um, – and I'm not sure what the answer to this is, which is why I'm asking it as a question, is we've made college um, admittance into a justice issue so that if – If you can't afford – everybody should be able to go to college is what our society is telling us. And if you're not able to go to college, then it's an injustice that the society is obligated to rectify. And so I think that's part of the problem too is I don't think we are – first of all, we're not able to communicate very well one with another right now anyway. But especially when it comes to justice issues, it seems like the only – Uh, response that the society sees as effective is one that's legislative like
1: this. Right. And the reason that we made it a matter of justice um, is because we treated it as an essential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say the reason that when people ask me about the housing bubble and what's next college bubble is because after World War II, there were two things that defined you as middle class. You owned a home and your kids went to college Mm -hmm. And if you, if you didn't own a home, you were nobody. Mm-hmm. And if your kids didn't go to college, you were nobody. You, you, you know, you didn't count. What's the matter with you? I guess they're mm-hmm. not smart well, enough, uh, you know, or I guess you didn't save enough. So that generation was told that they had to do these things and they became, uh, you know, basically got classified as essentials. Well, if it's an essential, then it kind of is justice that everyone have access to it. Sure. Um, but, of course, it isn't an essential. There's a lot, lots of ways to make a living in the world. And many of them do involve college. And that's great. I'm very much in favor of college. College universities are a Christian institution. They were, at least. They are created by Christians. Paganism didn't have a university system. Um, it had maybe specialty schools, but you had to have a universe to have a university. Mm-hmm. And in order to have a, have a universe, you had to have one God. In paganism, it's like well, you've got Poseidon; he's the lord of the sea, and you've got you know uh, Apollo; he's the lord of the sun. Uh, there, you couldn't have, you didn't have one god, so you didn't have one universe, and you didn't have one universe. You couldn't have one place where you could study everything, because there wasn't an integrated worldview. So in the Middle Ages, was one god, so it all fits together, and they create the university. I don't want to get rid of that. I just want to stop treating it as a necessity for everybody. And casting shade, even if it's subtle, on people who don't choose to take that route. Um, And the fact that it's required so much subsidy and now the subsidy of debt forgiveness tells us that it it had gotten oversold.
0: Right. So then I guess my question, Jerry, is, is it sustainable? I mean, uh, shrinking population, uh, burgeoning growth on the universities, uh, workforces saying we don't necessarily need college graduates, a shifting to a trade outlook, all those different things in play. But the universities, it's a gigantic business. Does where does it end? I mean, is there a fracturing, a splintering, and things you know are going to go in a different direction here based upon social and economic trends?
1: Yeah, I think it is splintering already, and you know, I think there there has, I think COVID subsidized it to some degree in the sense that, well, you can't work, you can't shop, you might as well stay home and do it, get an online degree. So I saw a lot of people just saying, "Eh, nah, might as well get an online degree." Mm-hmm. All right, well, but they're racking up debt, and that was lost work time. You know, I mean, working is education. You come out of high school and you work. um, And I remember when our oldest son, Chris, was asking us about this. I said, why don't you talk to my buddy, Ron Morris, the late Ron Morris, the American entrepreneur, very successful guy. Uh, He had been involved with CMU's Entrepreneurial Center. And Chris said, "Uh, I want to run a scenario. It's four years from now, and I've been working for a small business, and I applied for a job with you or it's four years from now and I went to a good college and I got a degree and I apply for a job with you, which one of me do you like? Hmm. And Ron said, Oh, the one with four years experience working for a small business with good references. Absolutely. That working is education. Um, so, you know, entrepreneurship is education. And yes, of course, for a number of professions, uh, it has to be formal education as well. Um, but again, If it's that great, then it doesn't need all these subsidies Mm -hmm. and it doesn't need all this social pressure. And it doesn't need I don't get we don't get to cancel mortgages house. I think it's worth. Buying a house for most people. I think yeah. houses tends to be an ascending asset. We're not canceling mortgages. We're not canceling all other forms of debt. I don't know why this form of debt. And I, I know we have to go to a break, but I just want to cut, put, put this marker here. I'm seeing a lot of stuff in social media saying this is the biblical point of view and this is the Christian point right, of view because right. Christians are for debt forgiveness. Christianity is based on debt forgiveness and the Shemitah law and the Jubilee law. And I'm sorry, they, those people don't know what they're talking about.
2: Uh, Jerry, for, um, those of us who read the old Testament, uh, there is a, uh, rich tradition. It's not, it's not a rich tradition at all. It's a terrible way to put it. Actually. Um, it was an idea of God's, uh, that, which is a much more accurate way of Thank saying you. that there would be, um, a year of Jubilee. There would be a year of forgiveness, um, the forgiveness of debts and, um, seeing many people online talking about how. All Christians should be rejoicing yeah, in, in this economic policy of President Biden's because this is forgiveness of debt. Same thing. Anyone who's against this would not be understanding the full um, mercy of God and what He wants for the justice of society. Uh, your thoughts on that, Jer?
1: Well, my thoughts are that the um, the, the Shemitah law um, is wise law. There's a question about whether it applies to us or not, or you know how much these things apply. The church has debated that, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to solve that one today. Um I I guess the general consensus is that there are principles. You know, you have the moral law which is forever, you have the ceremonial law which is done away by the work of Christ, and then you have these civil laws which have principles which then, you know, can can influence modern nations. That that's kind of the general consensus. But whatever you do with it, um it's important and it's God's word, but it you got to read the details. So all of the nations around Israel had some kind of debt forgiveness thing. The thing that was weird about Israel, about the Torah, not to say it's weird but different, about the Torah wasn't that it had a debt forgiveness provision. It's that its debt provi- uh, forgiveness provision was number 1 predictable at you know 7 years. So when you loan somebody and you're three ways 3 years away from a shemitah year, you know what's going to happen. You know that that debt's not going to to go on forever. Okay, so it's predictable. It's according to the rule of law. In other words, you know the rules in advance, and it doesn't have anything to do with the whim of the king. The king or the judge or whoever is the civil official or the assembly, they have nothing to do with this. Now, see, the other nations around Israel... What, what would happen is a king would say, well, yeah, you know, I did a lot of stupid things. People are mad at me. I lost a war or whatever. I, I need some popularity. And they would issue an imperial decree canceling debt. You know, that was one of the ways it happened. Another way it happened is when you get a new emperor, automatically all debts are forgiven because here's the blessing of a new emperor. Here's the gospel. Actually, the word was gospel. The announcement of a new emperor. We have a new emperor. All debts are forgiven. So it was tied to emperors and kings, and wasn't part of a rule of law. Um, and and the other thing you would happen is sometimes debts would accumulate for a long period of time. There would be something like you'd get near a revolution, and then you have these ancient lawgivers like Solon and, and Draco, like Sergius, who would come along and say, "Well, people are really upset, so we need to have a debt forgiveness." That's the pagan way. So. You know, Biden is not doing this is not being if we had a law in America that said debts couldn't go past seven years. I wouldn't be arguing. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not. But that would have biblical precedent Um, and that you, you that you can't sell property for more than 49 years. You know, that would have some biblical precedent, whether it applies to a modern country or not. But they're imitating the Babylonian system and calling it the biblical system. This is an imperial decree method of debt forgiveness, which is exactly what the Torah conspicuously dissents from by creating its regularly scheduled, doesn't matter who the king is, doesn't even matter whether there is a king or what the king thinks. It happens automatically because God's the king and this is part of his law. Um, And that is not what we saw here. We saw an executive decree from an unpopular president, um uh, to curry favor with debtors and that is something associated with paganism not torah. Okay, but what
2: about the the perspective which is okay, so you you know you're making a good point here. This isn't the same situation as that is, but debt forgiveness is still something that is clearly close to the heart of God because we recognize that our debts have been paid in a spiritual sense. Um and so this is just a way that we are Kind of reflecting our Heavenly Father, no
1: matter how it's done. Well, yes, but the debts were paid. They weren't forgiven. Mm-hmm. They weren't they weren't eliminated. Yeah. Jesus paid the debt. He did. That's why we have the biblical idea of redemption. We don't it, what happened in thirty three AD on the cross was not God saying, I, you know, I'm just gonna forget about debt. It was a different payer. And that payer did it voluntarily. We had a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. Why couldn't we pay it? We owe God every moment of our lives. So the so if, we're, if if I sin in one minute, and then for the next 80 years, I'm righteous, I still am not even, right? I can't possibly pay the debt for sin. So it's an unpayable debt, but it's payable by Jesus, and Jesus pays it. So if we're saying the state comes along and pays our school debt, mm-hmm. and we're using the gospel— as the analogy, we're saying essentially the state is Jesus. We're putting the state in the role of Jesus. The, you know, the state loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and the state <laughs> is going to redeem you from student debt. Nice. Uh, the other thing is that Jesus, that the redemption that Jesus offers, the debt that, that God, that he pays on our behalf, is a universal offer. It's not offered to a politically favored group. They expected it to be offered to a politically favored group. Um, you know, say Pharisees or whatever, said this is going to be for us. Instead, it's for everybody. But this, of course, um, college-educated, graduate school-educated people are one of the major sources of the base of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party's base is eroding with African-American and Latino votes. So the most reliable part of the base of the Democratic Party is people with college degrees and especially graduate degrees. Mm -hmm. So Jesus doesn't just say, People who are in my political party, I'm going to pay their debt. He doesn't play to the base. He will pay anyone's debt. Mm. Um, and so I think the analogy is really pretty strange. That's very good.
2: All right, Jerry. So let's talk about um, what is feeding your uh, mind, soul, spirit, sense of humor, however you want to look at it. Um, tell us what you're reading and what you're watching.
1: Well, we've been on a, a, our, our grandson. Is uh, four years old and he's on a Star Trek kick. Oh, is that right? So we've been binge. So he he's like he visits a lot, right? And so like he'll be he'll spend the weekend like weekend at Mima's. He calls it. Um, I'm along here too, but it's weekend at <laughs> Mima's. But he'll sit there with Pop Pop and we'll just like binge Star Trek: The Next Generation. I love it. Or you know, like, a, you whole a Trekkie or something like that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I yeah. didn't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, not the new ones. Uh, the the Picard and the Discoverer, Discoverer, whatever it is. Just not working for me, but the the classic and the next generation, really all, all the ones that aren't the brand new ones. Okay. And so we've been kind of binging that
0: Mm -hmm. long live William Shatner. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure so far
2: he has yeah he
0: sure has yeah i saw uh, just
2: don't let him sing
0: i saw a thing last week where william shatner was at a fruit stand in california somehow he dropped his wallet somebody found it and they opened it up and they were like hey we have william shatner's wallet they somehow someone said i know somebody who's connected to him he came back and got his wallet and everybody was happy
2: that's awesome okay what about you and susan anything you're watching when the youngers aren't around
1: Uh, well, I, you know, our favorite genre is still the odd little genre of the riff. Uh, so we've been watching, we found out that Pluto, um, network has a all riff all the time channel. What's riff? So, so you you, you know, a riff is, so you, okay. Like a a movie like night of the living dead. Yeah. Right. Or something like some hokey, some hokey horror or sci-fi movie. Right. And then people are watching it mm-hmm. and they're wise. Oh, right. Oh, of course. Through. Oh, yeah. Like, like, I guess Science theater. theater. Sure. Like, like yeah. the, that's the spin off of MST3K. Got it. So that's kind of our go to fun thing. I, I'll say you want to watch some trash. And trash means probably we're going to watch it. Okay, got it. That's very good, pretty good. Like an old Hercules movie or something like that. And people are wisecracking and we're laughing at them wisecracking.
0: That's funny stuff. It's
1: an acquired taste.
0: No, it's very fun. Um, Jay, before you leave us, let's go back and talk about what your kids, the book that your kids wrote again. People are interested in this, I'm sure. Uh, Give us the resource and is it still in print?
1: Uh, well, it was it was online only, and it was it was serialized at Forbes dot com. Okay. So if you just go and do Boyer, you're going to see a bunch from me, but you're going to see their series on why how they were making the they were processing it in real time. Should I go to college or not, and yeah. why? I think the first article, uh, the first one was by Gracie saying. The first of my family not to go to college. Interesting. Um, and uh, so they made they, they made a decision, and they're all happy with the decision. Nice. They have no student debt, and for the most part, they have no house debt. Wow. Uh, they just worked yeah. and accumulated assets rather than accumulating debt.
0: And so uh, Gracie and Chris wrote this uh, series of articles?
1: Yes, and um, I think Hope was involved as well um, in that one, but I think it was most, mostly Grace and Chris. Very nice.
2: All right, and what are you reading, Jer? The Book of Ruth.
1: Over and over again. Um, The way I read is I find a commentary, and I read the commentary, and then along with the commentary, I just reread the book over and over again.
2: Yeah, what's what commentary?
1: uh, Yuri Burrito's commentary, Under Your Wings. And then there's a commentary on the Hebrew text, um, which is called Ruth, I think, A Reader's Guide. And it's getting into some of the more advanced linguistic stuff. So what I do is I will It's going to sound pretentious—I'll just, like, read Ruth in Hebrew— and just loop through, and just read the commentary at the same time, mm-hmm. and then read the commentary on the Hebrew text. Now, after I'm done with this, I forget all the Hebrew. Um, but what I, I like to just do that with a book, have one commentary on the theological meaning, one commentary on the Greek or Hebrew. I just did one on James. And then the book itself. And then just in the evenings, just you know, spend, that's my final like, 20, 25 minutes of the day. That's cool. And one thing that surprised you so far about it, I'd forgotten how much that Ruth is a book about how to actually deal with poverty. Mm -hmm. It's an anti-poverty book. Um, And we kind of forget that we theologize it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also a book about paying debts and redemption. Mm -hmm. Right. So Ruth is redeemed, right, by Boaz. So there is somebody has to pay. Right. But the paying is done in the context of extended family and covenant relationship, not imperial decree from Babylon or something like that. And it sounds like I'm trying to tie it to the news of the day, right. but it really is the model for, you know, almsgiving and poor relief, extended mm-hmm. family redemption, and includes work. Remember the book starts, well, it starts with the death, uh, you know, of the, of the sons of the, of the husband and the son, but they come back to Israel and they glean. So it's working, but there's, but it's not just work. There is grace, but the grace is given to somebody who's doing their best, not to somebody who has a sense of for, for instance Tournament. entitlement
0: yeah hanging out
1: um, ruth's mother in law that that's orpa am I correct about that uh orpa is uh, the, the mother in law is naomi, naomi and then orpa, so there's two the the sons orpa. The sons marry two Moabite women, and one of them is Orpah. Got it. And that's where Oprah's name came from. Mm -hmm. Her mom knew it was a name from the Bible, but she couldn't remember how to spell it. (laughs) Right. And Orpah is the one who goes back to the Moabites. So not really a good choice. Don't choose Oprah or Orpah as a name for your kid. (laughs) Ruth is better. Ruth says, well, your God's going to be my God. Whereas Orpah slash Oprah says, all right, I'm going to go back to Moabite territory and worship Chemosh." Who um, you know does not have grace. So uh, th- th- there are two women who go into. They're both Moabites ethnically, but one covenantally binds herself to Ruth, uh, eventually Boaz, and and Israel and the God of Israel, whereas the other goes back to her pagan gods. Very good,
0: Jerry. Always fascinating. Always Thank good you to so talk much. to
1: you, Jerry. Always a pleasure. Our How pleasure.
0: Does. Susan and Jerry Boyer. We are fortunate to have them here in Western Pennsylvania, otherwise known as Me Mom Pop Pop. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.